to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. We have now officially covered Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 107, which begins with special thanks, and it ends with a black screen, because we're done. Yay, we're done. We made it. We finally made it. I say finally made it. This movie was only 107 minutes long. It's not like we're Lord of the Rings Minute or anything ridiculous like that. No, we covered a very reasonably length movie in a very reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. In fact, we're going to have to do this plus another 13 for Fury Road, so I shouldn't be complaining about how long a movie can be when the next (laughs) one's going to be longer than this. So for this final episode, I thought it would be fun to do something out of the ordinary. So I have a couple of segments that I'm going to play during this episode that I've gone off and I've poked fun, spoofed, lampooned, parodied, honored by my imitation, however you want to put it. But I've done some of that. And I'm going to play it in this episode. But before we get into it, I figured it might be kind of fun to share little bits of trivia that we may have missed going through these 107 previous minutes. So I did a little digging around. Do you want to start or should I start? I'm going to start because I know what you're going to say and yours is longer and more in depth than mine. So we'll get mine out of the way and then we'll dive into yours. I'm kind of surprised that this little fun fact didn't come up during the episode where we covered the sandstorm at the end of the movie. But the sandstorm at the end of the movie was a real sandstorm. Really? That uh, blew up, uh, stirred up, came up. You know, What's the right wording on that? I'm not entirely sure the proper verbiage yeah. for how, how a sandstorm forms, but I'm going to say blew in. Blew in? Okay. So the sandstorm blew in and they got a plane up in the air to film some of it. And the rest of the crew just had to hunger down in their cars and wait for it to pass. That sounds appropriately miserable. Yes, it does. From all of the stories that I've heard about the production of this movie, that seems pretty on brand. Very much so. I was poking around and I found a list Apparently, between posters and advertising, there were seven different taglines that were used for this movie, and so I listed them out. Now, granted, I got all of these from IMDb, so their sources are dubious at best, but they start with Max's back, ellipses, and Tina's got him, which seems kind of terrible because Auntie is played by Tina Turner, but she's never called Tina. Right, they're crossing how they referring to individuals. That's got to be like an entertainment rag type of thing. Yeah, probably. It's got to be. Because Max is the name of character, but Tina is the name of the actress. Mm -hmm. So it's bad grammar. It really is. The next one is really long-winded. It says, A lone warrior searching for his destiny, ellipses. A tribe of lost children waiting for a hero, ellipses. In a world battling to survive, they face a woman determined to rule. Hold out for Mad Max. This is his greatest adventure. Okay. I mean, it's an adventure. I wouldn't say it's his greatest adventure. Yeah, I picture this being said by the movie voiceover guy at the beginning of a trailer. Yeah, epic movie voice. Yeah. This summer... Coming to a theater near you. One of the other taglines is just Mighty Max. 
which feels very odd. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the Mighty Max name belonged to a series of children's toys. Do you remember Polly Pocket? Yes, I do. Mighty Max was the male alternative to Polly Pocket. Okay, okay. So instead of having little compact-sized dollhouses, you had compact size monster layers and so you'd have your little mighty max figurine and it would always come with a monster and the layer would be in the shape of the monster's face and it would open up and have a cave or a castle or some sort of perilous situation for mighty max to find himself in speaking of mighty the next tagline on my list is the mightiest movie in town the biggest crowds the biggest entertainment on any screen which is so terribly generic that it could be for literally anything except for maybe like the castaway movie because there's like very few people in that one (laughs) it does feel very generic i'm guessing that that is attached to an ad that ran after opening weekend trying to keep up the buzz to get Mm -hmm. people to go the second weekend and the third weekend to keep bringing in the money saying that lots of people have seen it and lots of people love it i know getting political can date your podcast very quickly but that tagline sounds like something our current president would say (laughs) yes yes it does so moving on there is just the simple two men enter one man leaves which is just a succinct and beautiful way to summarize this movie it is this might be one of my favorite on the list because that tagline that quote from the movie has genuinely endured over Mm -hmm. the years you say to anybody mad max beyond thunderdome and that's what they're going to reply with Mm -hmm. it's iconic not so iconic is the tagline hold out for mad max this is his greatest adventure once again promising the greatest adventure which kind of makes me wonder what people in 1985 qualified as adventure was it just sheer amount of locations you go to well what adventures came out around this like in the two years ahead of this movie what adventure movies were out there what are we comparing this with well goonies came out in 1985 so did back to the future raiders of the lost ark was 1981 84 was temple of doom i feel like claiming that this is a great adventure is a bit of a tall order compared to what people were getting used to We had all of the original Star Wars movies were out by 1983. You had Conan the Barbarian in 1982. A lot of what most people qualify as action-adventure movies that came out before that. And as much as I love this movie, I wouldn't necessarily say it's the greatest adventure. Max's greatest adventure. Would you say that this is Max's greatest adventure? I mean, he he does hmm. a lot of traveling around. Which is pretty adventurous. It is, but greatest really can be taken different ways. Greatest could be his most important, which could be said because he did save a bunch of children Mm -hmm. and he did topple a questionable government. Greatest could be distance spanned, which he did go from the wilderness to Bartertown to the wilderness to the crack in the earth to the wilderness back to Bartertown back to the wilderness. He logged a lot of miles in this movie. Yeah, I'm starting to wonder if this actually is the greatest adventure, but I think it all depends very heavily on your criteria. It does, and that's very subjective. Now, the last one on my list is also very long-winded. It says, a lone warrior searching for his destiny, a tribe of lost children waiting for a hero in a world battling to survive they face a woman determined to rule which is the exact same one as the second one i said 
just minus the holdout for Mad Max. I also like this one. I like that they are drawing a natural, you are in need of a leader. I am a leader type in need of a destiny. Hey, look at that. We fit together. We need each other. I like that they're drawing those parallels. I never considered Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome to be a newspaper classified style (laughs) meetup situation. Well, I think the way that they put it is accurate. He is a lone warrior searching for his destiny. He has no purpose. His purpose is to survive. But if your purpose is only to survive with nothing else, then what's the point of survival? Hmm. And the children were literally waiting for a hero. Yeah. Although I would still argue that they didn't so much need a hero as much as they just needed a life beyond Thunderdome. (laughs) But part of the plot of the movie is them figuring out that they don't need a hero. They Mm. thought they did. They got the one that they thought they wanted. Turns out they didn't need him at all so they went out and did their own thing anyways yeah so the plot of the movie is them starting out at this tagline and then finishing up somewhere else Hmm. a journey speaking of plots and journeys the first little parody that i've put together has to do with a little podcast that probably a lot of people have heard of it's called lore from a guy named aaron Mankey. He has done a podcast, a television show with Amazon. He's written books. It's a very popular series. And what he does is he basically takes stories, whether they're ghost stories or monster stories or true stories, and he distills them down, pumps them out with some music put behind them. And I thought to myself, I really like this guy's style. I listen to his stuff all the time. What would it sound like if he was the history keeper for the waiting ones. So that's what I put together, and that's what I'm going to play right now. So sit back, enjoy that, and we'll be back once it's done. We kept it straight. It's all there. Everything marked, everything remembered. You wait. You'll see. The wandering merchants who travel along the sea share stories of the great northern tribe and warlords that threatened their lives before they reached the Sunshine Coast. The elders of the great northern tribe were trapped within their own walls as the terrible Lord Humongous threatened to kill them all, but they would not give him what he wanted. They had a huge tank of gasoline that they had pulled from the ground, and it was the only way for them to get to their place in the sun. When hope was running low, a road warrior appeared and delivered a mighty rig to haul the gas. And though they lost many warriors to the Lord Humongous, they won the day and reached the coast and began their new civilization. There are many such stories in the wasteland, of terror and violence, of hope and survival. And though there are many stories like it, this one is ours. The years travel fast and time after time I've done the tell, But this is not just one person's story. It's the story of us all. And you've got to listen to it and remember. Because what you hear today, you have to tell the young ones tomorrow. I'm the History Man, and this is The Tell. I'm looking behind us now down the long hall into history and I see the end of the world. For reasons long forgotten, two mighty warrior tribes went to war and 
touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. The world was powered by gasoline, but without the fuel they were nothing. Their thundering machines sputtered and stopped. Their leaders talked and talked and talked, but nothing could stem the avalanche. Their world crumbled, the cities exploded. It was the pox eclipse, bringing pain and suffering to everyone and everything that they had built. For those that survived, the world was a different place. The billowing clouds of pox eclipse covered the sun and brought poison dust that crackled down from the sky. It was full-on winter, and many that were spared the initial destruction would succumb to the sickness and hardships of this new wasteland. Death was a common visitor. From this group of survivors emerged a figure, a man called Captain Walker. He was a pilot, a man who could capture the wind and ride it like a road through the sky. Legend says that he gathered up a following, and after loading them into a massive plane called a sky raft, they took to the air to escape the misery on the ground. They said goodbye to their homes, to the lives they lived before the calamity, and to the cities that had proven to be more of a danger than a protection in these violent times. And what was left of the assembled knowledge and wisdom of their day was left behind in the hollowed-out remains of a world they once knew. They traveled a great distance, but wherever they were headed, they never arrived. Some say the wind stopped and they fell from the sky like a stone. Others say that the sky raft was assaulted by a gang called Turbulence. But whatever the cause or reason, Captain Walker and his passengers were forced back to Earth. The crash claimed many lives from those that followed Captain Walker. But those that had been particularly lucky went forth from the wreckage to find an oasis in the desert. This crack in the earth had everything they needed to survive. Clean water, wood for building shelters, food that grew from the trees, and game for them to hunt for meat. The survivors called it Planet Earth, and declared that they had no need for the world that they had left behind, for there was security and abundance amidst this new and terrifying wasteland. For a time, the survivors were content. They built shelters, they had children, and lived off the land that provided for their every need. For Captain Walker had truly led them to safety. But as is common with people, they grew restless for the world that they had once known. They missed the cities packed with skyscrapers and the distractions of their videos. For they had never truly forgotten where they came from. And through all of their trials, they held on to mementos of that world, and would gaze upon collections of images to remind themselves of what they had left. A city at night with light shining in every window. A river of bright colors flowing over a massive bridge. And even their own sky raft soaring proudly high above the ground. These were a reminder of what was but also a promise of a world that could one day be reclaimed by someone courageous enough to do so. And so Captain Walker gathered up a group of 20 
from among his survivors. Folks that were strong and fast, good for a long journey through inhospitable terrain. And he left a record carved in the stone that sheltered them against the sands. Rescue party departed at first light, led by Flight Captain G.L. Walker. May God have mercy on our souls. It was the first great leaving that departed the safety of the crack in the earth that day. But before they left, Captain Walker gave a commandment and a promise. Wait, he said. One of us will come. And so those that had stayed behind became the waiting ones. Before long, they too became restless, and another leaving was organized. Though this second group was smaller, they were no less determined to reclaim the world they knew. None of the search parties ever returned, and the waiting ones became a tribe of abandoned children. The years went on, and one courageous woman decided it was time to take up the search for those that had left, and saying goodbye to the others, including her young son, Savannah Nix entered the desert. It's unclear how long she was away, but when she returned, she was not empty-handed. Savannah had found a man out in the desert with long, wild hair and dark clothing and had tied him to a leader. The man was unconscious and baked from the hot sun, but Savannah was certain of his identity. It was none other than Captain Walker himself. The children that had been left behind so many times before were eager to see someone finally return to them, and the man was brought back to the oasis, and after a time, was revived by their care. To their confusion, this man was unfamiliar with them and their history. He fit all of the criteria, but denied being Captain Walker at every turn, despite his amazing ability to catch the wind. This caused a divide amongst the waiting ones. The lead tracker was determined that they should stay in the oasis forevermore, but Savannah refused and pledged to leave again, this time with others. And so Savannah did just that. She gathered up a group of those courageous enough to brave the desert, and under cover of night, slipped out into the wasteland, leaving the others behind. The going was slow and hot. One of them, a boy who walked with a crutch, succumbed to the heat of the day and exhaustion of the effort and fell behind. He was left to fend for himself as was customary amongst the tribe. Tragedy struck again when Savannah's young son slipped from the top of a dune and fell into quicksand. Savannah and the others formed a human chain and tried to save him, but even with assistance from the sudden arrival of the man who was not Captain Walker, they were unable to save him. This man who was not Captain Walker had arrived with other children from the tribe, carrying water to bring Savannah and the others back. But they were out of water, and solutions were equally scarce. As night fell, one among them, the one they called Screwloose, discovered a strange glow in the distance, which proved familiar to the man who was not Captain Walker, and their course was now clear. They climbed down through great metal pipes and found themselves in a dark and noisy place filled with pigs and filth. Despite their efforts to sneak about, Screwloose was discovered, and angry men with weapons began attacking the children. 
Help came from the most unlikely place. A man, chained and scarred, defeated the guards with the help of an old, tiny man. They used ambush and cleverness to stop the angry men, and brought the children aboard a large machine that lurched and rolled out of that dark place. The great machine roared across the face of the wasteland at terrible speed, but the angry men were close behind, led by a fearsome woman dressed in shining steel. They tried to take the tiny man and kill the chained man, as well as the man who was not Captain Walker, but they fought back and got away. But their path was soon blocked by a child, not unlike themselves. He had blocked the way of the great machine with a large pile of dirt and so Savannah and the others abandoned the great machine and followed the boy who led them to a series of underground tunnels. They followed all the way until the man who was not Captain Walker stopped. He had found another man, tall and dressed in white, and soon they were all climbing inside this man's own flying machine. It was not as grand or impressive as their own skyraft, and it struggled to get off the ground, even running out of earth and having to stop and turn around. With the fearsome woman still in pursuit, the man who was not Captain Walker left the flying machine, and using a machine of his own cleared the way for Savannah and the others, allowing them to take to the sky and escape the reach of these men on machines. The tall man flew and flew and flew, and eventually they arrived at the place they knew they belonged. One look and they knew they had gotten it straight, because they knew what was from the pictures, and they saw what it could be again. And so Savannah and the others took back the city, and we continue what they started. Every night we do the tell, so that we remember who we were, and where we came from. But most of all, we remember the man who was not Captain Walker, the one who found us, him that came as salvage. And we light the city, not just for him, but for all of them that are still out there. Because we know there will come a night when they see the distant light, and they'll be coming home. And we're back. So, Julia, did you find another odd bit of trivia for us today? I did, but I think you should go first on this one. Okay. So as I was poking around, I found a bit of trivia that kept popping up. I didn't find a concrete way to confirm it or anything like that. It just seemed to pique my interest. There is a rumor out there that before they hired Tina Turner to play Auntie Entity, they were considering hiring Jane Fonda. As in, TV movie star Jane Fonda from The Dollmaker. She worked in the TV series 9 to 5 in 1982. She was on Golden Pond in 1981. She had a lot of social controversy during the Vietnam War that I've never truly understood, so I'm not going to try to understand it. But it just seems like an odd choice. Blonde hair, blue-eyed Jane Fonda in the role of 
auntie, the wasteland capitalist. Well, I don't know much about Jane Fonda. Again, about her political views. I know that she is a controversial figure, but I don't know a lot of the history behind that. Although I think perhaps her controversial political views and how she has stood up for those views, maybe that is what would make her a good auntie. Auntie needs to be somebody who has a certain presence about her. And Tina Turner, I absolutely think was the right choice, but I can see why they thought about Jane Fonda. She has a history of making sure that her presence and her strength is felt through her protesting and her political views. So it's something that she has experience with and something that the public has experience viewing. And as far as the difference between Tina Turner and Jane Fonda, they're only two years apart as far as age. So it would be pretty much the same stage of life for your actress. I just don't think I could picture it. You know what I mean? She definitely would have cut a very different figure. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I'm not sure that Jane Fonda could have pulled off the outfit that Auntie wears. No. Both presence-wise and physically. I found a quote from 1985, an article in Rolling Stone magazine, and I'm just going to read straight from. Um, how do you pronounce the costumer's name? Morico? It's Frenchish. It's M-O-R-I-C-E-A-U. I always did a soft C at the end, so Moriso. Moriso, okay. The dress Moriso concocted for Entity is an expressionist classic, a 121-pound soldered amalgam of dog muzzles, coat hangers, and chicken wire, the whole overlaid with gleaming chainmail butcher aprons and accessorized with pendulant auto spring earrings. The accompanying wig, styled to echo the movie's male plumage, required Tina to shave her head for proper fitting. She offered no protest. So there's, there's several uh, lovely nuggets in there. I have my doubts about 121 pounds. It just seems a little much, doesn't it? It seems excessive. I think that it was very, very heavy, but 121 pounds seems like too much. Yeah. If I remember right, Tina Turner was so gung-ho and excited to be doing this movie because she wanted to get into show business. She wanted to branch out, be multi-talented. She probably had aspirations for an EGOT type of thing. So she was super willing to do just about anything for this movie. Including shaving her head. Mm -hmm. We never talked about it when Auntie was on screen about the construction of her dress, her outfit. The description here says it's an amalgamation of dog muzzles, coat hangers, and chicken wire overlaid with chainmail butcher aprons. I think I always pictured in my head that it was custom made link by link. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was. I think they took a product that was already done for them and just turned it into what they needed it to be. Yeah. I'm actually impressed that there are chainmail butcher aprons. I always imagined them just having thick leather. Mm-hmm. But I imagine while chainmail would be heavier, it would breathe a lot better. Yes. And the idea of a dress cobbled together from butcher aprons makes a lot of sense. Right. Why make something from scratch that you can buy? Because chainmail is pretty easy to manufacture on an individual basis because you just take a length of wire, spool it up so that it forms rings. You cut the wire so that you have individual rings, then you just fit them together. Like when we had Liz on. She yeah. She talking about that. So on the one hand, you could have someone sitting there and custom making all of those panels 
for the entirety of that dress, or you just find a bunch of pre-made panels, fit them together. Yeah. Can chainmail be done in any way by machine? Can a machine link all those little circlets together? I want to say yes. Because there are very few things that a well-tuned machine can't do. Right. But where the linking is so intricate, I imagine that a very well-made butcher's apron made out of chain would have to be made by hand. Mm. I would assume. But speaking of things pre-made by other people, (laughs) not my most smooth transition, I know, but whatever. We're at the end of the season. I'm giving it all I've got, Captain. This next segment, I called up friend of the show, Casadilla, to help me out with this one because there is a podcast that I absolutely love listening to. It's from someone named Maggie Takuda Hall, and she does a little podcast she likes to call Drunk Safari. It is your number one resource for animal facts as told by dilettantes. So she will call up a friend of hers or if she's feeling ambitious, an actual scientist and they will just dish about animals for 45 minutes or so and as the name would suggest they do it after throwing a few back so Cass and I did our best impressions and we tried to be subtle with it it's not obnoxious but we did our own version of drunk safari but we called it wasted wasteland safari so sit back have fun listening to that and we will be back once that's over to wrap up this season G'day, you wastelanders, raiders, and animal lovers of all types out there in the blighted hellscape that we call home. I'm your host, Rick, broadcasting from my military-grade radio tower with another episode of the Wasted Wasteland Safari. This time around, we've got a real treat. Joining us from a far-off place called the Commonwealth is our guest for today, Cass. Hey, Cass, how's it going? Oh, it's pretty good here. Uh, It's a little cold, uh, but, you know, that's how it is up here in the Commonwealth. And Cass, you have come prepared to share with us, the listeners, a little bit of fauna that runs around your neck of the woods. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. um, I I am very prepared. It is... My favorite animal and also my most hated animal, but I I love it and I love to hate it at the same time. Nice. And what is the name of your creature that you've brought us today? Well, honestly, uh, when you asked me to do this, I knew there was only one creature I could possibly choose. The Death Claw. Specifically the glowing and chameleon Death Claws, but all of them, it's an over-encompassing thing. And they... They're so cool, but they are complete nightmare fuel. Oh, I love them, but I fear them. <laughs> I mean, that's a great start. That's a great name. Right? For a creature, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Does it have any sort of like scientific name? So I did a bunch of research. I went to a couple of the old uh, libraries. I got into the Boston Public Library and got to figure out some stuff through their terminals. Uh, apparently, the original scientific name was Trios. Saros Jacksoni, and that was the scientific name of the original animal, the Jackson's chameleon. Oh. The death claw is a mutated form. The DNA of a couple other animals were mixed in too, but we've lost records of what those were. It was mixed up with the FEV, uh, which 
you guys might not have down there. It's the forced evolutionary virus. And so it was made by those super ethical pre-war scientists for the military. Uh, you know, they were, <laughs> they were great. All sorts of things that they did. Nothing ever went wrong. Um, <laughs> I guess since there's no authority to say otherwise, I could name the glowing and chameleon death claws myself. You are our animal expert for the day. So really, you could do whatever the hell you want. Okay, so I have this uh, pocket Latin dictionary that I found. And uh, so for the glowing death cloth, I am going to go with uh, Jacksoni Mortem Excandeso, which basically means Jackson's glowing death. And uh, the uh, the the chameleon death claw, I'm going to go with uh, latest necks. And that's colorful slaughter. Now, I'm probably mispronouncing them horribly, but. Nobody alive knows how to speak Latin, so who cares? It's an even more dead language now. (laughs) (laughs) Double dead. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that sounds terrifying to begin with, but is there a collective noun? Like, what do you call a group of these things? Well, so the collective noun thing is is a little weird uh, because they're mostly solitary but sometimes you can come across a family um if you're extremely unlucky i guess uh (laughs) you'll come across them in like gullies and quarries or caves occasionally um if you find a group of them usually folks will call it a pack but if i was gonna name a group of them i would go with a murder of death claws or a massacre of death claws Ooh, i love the idea of a massacre of death claws because We still got crows down here and, you know, the group of them, we call those a murder. So a massacre just seems like one step beyond. Yeah, we have crows up here, too, but they're all uh, they're they're spies for the Institute. So we don't really like them. Um, (laughs) And really, one death club by itself is a massacre already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm almost afraid to ask, but how big do these things get? That's another weird one. Uh. Because everything's so mutated, it's it's hard to say with any authority. But uh, so the average run of the mill death claw is like nine to ten feet. The matriarchs and the alphas can get significantly bigger. Some of the more isolated variations out on the west coast uh, never stop growing as they age. They can get really really big, uh, like twenty feet tall. Damn. Yeah. There's there's also uh, and this is I don't know if this is uh, it's I can't confirm it, but uh, there is a legend about one taller than one of those old radio towers. But that's from way, way out west. And they tell all kinds of crazy stories out there. Um, they they say that the footprints are longer than a super mutant behemoth is tall. But I think that's just Brahmin crap, really. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I can't confirm it, so I don't know. I'm a little terrified by the idea of something called a death claw that does not stop growing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's records of really, really, really big ones. But I don't, I don't know if that that one where they it's taller than the radio towers. I think that they're just like seeing old movie posters, like pre-war movie posters. I just, I don't know. I don't know what to think. How long do these things live? I feel like I'm answering the same, like every time that you ask me a question, I'm giving you the same answer. <laughs> it's hard to say for sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the uh, the chameleons that they descended from, they in captivity apparently lived five to ten years. 
I can't confirm anything about regular death claws, but this is this is something that keeps me up at night. The glowing death claws, they're essentially equivalent to glowing ghouls, which I don't know if you have those there, but they're basically um, sort of like old world zombies, but uh, the glowing ones, they are healed by radiation. So in theory, they specifically, the glowing death claws could be immortal. Struth. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> terrifying. Woof. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how long they live, but longer than anyone who approaches them. <laughs> My gosh. Yeah. 10 foot behemoths. Yeah. Plus that. Yeah. That are effectively immortal. Mm-hmm. And you said they glow. Yeah. They, oh, they're beautiful. <laughs> yeah. You know, like in that terrifying, beautiful sort of way. Um, mm-hmm. I I love them. I love things that glow, but that also means danger. So, uh, but they they have like an inner light, and that's not like a metaphorical thing talking about their spirit or anything. It's they actually glow with radiation inside of them, and so like when when one of the glowing death claws roars, it is you can see the heat waves coming out of its maw and the the shine of the green glow inside of them. And it's terrifying if you've ever been close enough to see those, like the heat distortion, but oh, oh it's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> do they have a favorite food? What do what these things eat? What should I stay away from? Uh, anyone stupid enough to get too close, really. <laughs> they eat humans, ghouls, super mutants, mole rats, uh, Brahmin, you know, Yaogwai, anything. Anything will fall to the mighty death claw. Uh, it's it doesn't surprise me though because the chameleons that they descended from, uh, they ate all kinds of small critters, insects, uh, small birds and rodents and snails and stuff. And those lizards were only like a foot long. So really, it's no surprise that a mutated, gigantic form of that would be able to take something like a yaogwai or a centaur down. So if I wanted to avoid one of these things, I would probably want to know when they're out and about. What time of day are these things active? Uh, well, I've I've never seen one asleep. It doesn't mean that they don't, but um, I've never seen one asleep. Not really. I've seen them in sort of a like a quasi doze. Not any specific time of day, though. They just seem like they're sort of shutting down most of their operations, but they're on high alert. So any scent or anything like that, they they'll come right back and they are dangerous all the time. (laughs) They are extremely perceptive, especially the blind ones, which you would think would be opposite. But uh, I don't know that the blind ones, which you don't see very often, but if you do Sam? I hope that you're looking through a scope because they will find you and they will slap your head right off your shoulders. That doesn't make any sense to me. That the blind ones, yeah, I are more perceptive. Well, it could be that they um, that they could hear better, or maybe they have a better sense of smell, or you know, maybe they're they're blind, but they per- perhaps have like a heat vision thing. I'm not sure. It's. I mean. <laughs> can't do any tests <laughs> <laughs> i don't imagine that there are people out there tagging uh, death claws uh, not not in the <laughs> commonwealth anyways <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh i almost <laughs> am afraid to ask this question but how does a death claw reproduce well um so like 
like most reptiles or possibly all, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm not a reptile biologist. Uh, they have that nasty one hole for all the business thing going on with a cloaca or cloaca or however you pronounce it. A cloaca. Yeah. (laughs) The females are definitely larger than the males, but really as far as I'm aware, no one has seen Deathclaw's breed and lived to tell the tale. Um, But personally, if, if I had to guess, I would say that probably the glowing and the chameleon death claws use their colors to attract a mate, uh, sort of like some old world uh, birds would. Um, I would absolutely love to see what kind of crazy displays they'd put on. Um, I, the chameleons that they mutated from did give birth to live young, but I know that death claws of all kinds lay eggs. Um, in clutches of three to six, sometimes more. I think it varies on the available food sources since the nests I've seen in barren areas have fewer eggs and the ones in areas with lots of prey have a, have significantly more. So Eggs. I never would have, never even would have guessed that. Yeah. Uh, I Actually, I've had a Deathclaw omelet before. Oh, yeah? And it was surprisingly good. And uh, it fills you right up. It gives you a lot of energy. <laughs> We've been spending a lot of time in the world of concrete fact, and I think it's time for us to take a step into the world of opinions. If you could rename the Deathclaw anything at all, you're our Deathclaw expert for the day. If you could rename it, what would you name this thing? Uh, I don't even know, because Deathclaw is about as direct as you can get. <laughs> I'm not sure I could top it. I mean, how else could you describe it? Uh, it's a murder monster nightmare. I I don't know. <laughs> there's there's nothing better and more succinct than Deathclaw, honestly. I would probably just have to stick with that. I know that's probably boring, but it's not like it's a, a weird name for it. It is it is Deathclaw. It is the claws of death. <laughs> Maybe that was the only thing that people could say before they were torn to shreds by a 10-foot monster. Yeah, I think probably Deathclaw, I think the name probably came about from people finding the corpses. uh, And they saw the claw marks, which are, you know, enormous. And, you know, there's, what, four claws. uh, Well, it's it's got hands sort of like ours in shape. But, you know, they've got the four main fingers. And each of those claws, when they swipe at something, it's about six inches apart so you would see that and be like holy crap what the heck did this it's death claw (laughs) i I don't know i think that they were spending too much time trying to survive gosh (laughs) to come up with something more creative so if this animal was a person like take the idea of a sentient death claw completely off the table if this creature was somehow transformed into a person, what kind of person would that be? Uh, all right. So most of the things that I was going to say are also things that are sort of specific to, well, what's left of America. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would say, uh, first thing, I would say uh, Frank Horrigan, who uh, yeah, there's legends about he's enormous, dangerous, single-minded, but he did die. So Frank Horrigan, but a ghost person from (laughs) Aramadre who you can't kill. 
uh, or, or, um, okay. Uh, yeah, you haven't been there. You haven't been to the ninth circle. So there's a, there's a bar in underworld, the ghoul underworld, not, not the one with the pigs that I know you guys have. I say we love uh, our pig underworld. I know it's, it's, this one's full of ghouls and they're awesome. Uh, so it's in, it's in DC and there's a bar there called the ninth circle and there's a ghoul bouncer. His name is Sharon. He's huge, deadly, fast as a night stalker and scary as hell, but also super cool and fascinating. So I would say death claws are Sharon. Well, from the sound of him, I'd say he's probably a good analog for sure. Oh, yeah. And he's he's a great guy to have at your back, too. <laughs> okay. Now, I feel like I already know the answer to this question, but could you beat this animal in a fist fight. In a fist fight. Uh, no. <laughs> 100% no. I have taken a few down, but nearly died every single time. And one of those times I was in like the highest grade of XO one power armor and had a had like every high powered weapon that you could name. Uh, if in a fist fight, I would maybe, maybe get one punch in unless it did that leap attack that it does. Really, the first swipe would rip my head right off my shoulders. It would be like eyeballs and blood gobs everywhere. It's just, there's no way. <laughs> Man, the more I hear about this thing, the more I want to see it in a Thunderdome. I just want to <sighs> see those doors open and just watch the face on some poor sod who gets stuck in with cage with one of these things. Oh, man. Who would you put in there? Oh, just anyone. <laughs> That's the lovely thing about Thunderdome is sometimes you can name your champion and be like, okay, I'll have a big old swipey boy here. He's going to be my champion. <laughs> oh, my God. He'd have to really piss you off. Let's <laughs> <laughs> say anyone who messes with my radio tower, they get yes. domed, mm. thunderdomed. Yes, so Definitely. <laughs> this has been fun. I've been interviewing you, but now, even though you're the the one that has been doing me the favor by coming on to my broadcast, we're going to flip the switch, and now you get to interview me, because I also picked out a wasteland creature from my neck of the woods to talk about. That's great, because I, I have no idea what you guys have down there, so this is very exci exciting. Um, so what animal did you pick? My animal is called the drop bear. Huh. Okay. Uh, does does it have a scientific name? Oh, it absolutely does. So I took a trip out to the coast to one of the bombed out cities, and I found the remains of the Sydney Zoo, and they wow. actually cataloged this thing before the bombs drop, which is insane because it's a mutation of the wasteland. Like all the radiation, the crackling dust and the full on winter, that's what made the drop bears. But they already had all this information here and it's great. They called it the Thylarctos plumetus. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what that means. <laughs> so the Thylarctos family is a family of carnivorous marsupials. Oh my God. Which means these things have little pouches where they keep their young. Oh, I thought you were going to say they keep their meat in there because they're carnivorous. <laughs> well, they could do that too. Uh, I'm not ruling it out. A pocket for snacks. Only the females carry the young, so I don't know what the males use their pouches for. Meat. <laughs> but then it's also called, uh, so the Tharlarctos is the family, Plumetus is the specific name, because as I mentioned, it's called the drop bear, and you can probably imagine why. Uh, well, uh, 
can, can you fill me in? Because I I'm I'm struggling. I I have no basis for comparison. <laughs> so what is this drop bear? Plumatus, like like plummeting? Okay, okay, I got it. I got it. Yep, you got the root right. now. You're catching on. <laughs> okay. Um. So does it does it have a collective noun? So similar to the death claw, the drop bear is a rather solitary creature. But what a lot of people have noticed is that they tend to all gather in the same general area. So if they've got really tightly controlled territories, sometimes they overlap. And we don't know exactly how they travel around because so few people have ever survived an encounter with one. Uh, it's, yeah. you know, yeah. side effect of living in a wasteland. But mm -hmm. if, when you have a territory that's filled with drop bears, you usually refer to it as having a drop bear population. Oh. Sort of like when you talk about a settlement. Yeah. We're not very creative. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, it works. It works. <laughs> um, so what is what is this animal's average size? Oh, hold on to your hats. So this thing, the average size is about 120 kilograms, which for you living back in the States is 265 pounds. Holy crap! I am 20 pounds lighter than the average drop bear. Uh, that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets better because okay. they are 130 centimeters long or for you, four and a half feet okay. from nose to tail. So they're they're dense. Yeah. And they're... 90 centimeters at the shoulder or three feet Holy crap! Like so from palm of the paw up to the shoulder that's three feet suckers are huge yeah. Holy crap wow yeah they're about the size of something called a leopard or a very large dog okay you probably got dogs yeah. running all over the place yeah we got dogs we got ooh, we got mutant hounds that sounds similar to what you what you're describing in there yeah they got coarse orange fur with a kind of dark mottled patterning and it's a very heavily built animal with these powerful forearms for climbing mm. and holding on to prey it's often described now i say often described because most people are turning tail and run when they see these things attack mm. but they're described with vicious canine teeth and broad powerful premolars and those are like the, the primary biting tool. Like the canines will grab it, but the premolars will just shred it Ugh. right off. Ugh. Oh, it's terrifying to see. Yeah, that sounds... It's not something you want to be in the neighborhood for. No, no. Um, okay, so that's... Uh, how, how long do they live? <laughs> now, all we have is estimations because no one's going out there and using drugs to put these things to sleep to put clips in their ear. Yeah. But we guess... Our best guess is somewhere between 15 and 20 years. <laughs> so they're only going to get like more skilled at taking people out with time. Oh, yeah. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but as long as you stay out of their territory, you can wait them out for a couple of decades. And granted, you'll have to worry about the next generation. But, you know, if you got one specific drop bear that you got to beef with, <laughs> you can outlive that. <laughs> it's possible. Okay. Um, so I, I, well, you said that they eat meat, but is there any, what is their natural food source? Is there anything they specifically have a taste for? <laughs> 
So every time someone has examined a kill site or scat remain uh, scat, Ooh. it suggests that they mainly eat medium to large mammals, and it's pretty much all meat. These guys are complete carnivores. Usually they'll stick to things that are smaller than themselves, but they have been known to like attack stuff that's bigger. Basically, they hang out in the tops of trees about eight meters up or roughly 25 feet. Thank you. <laughs> and they will just look down. And when they see some prey, they will just drop from the tree and impact right on top of whatever they were looking at. And so dropping will stun the prey. Most of the time, it'll just straight up kill the prey. Yeah. And if it doesn't kill them, they've got these giant muscular arms with five-fingered paws, and they will either bite the neck clear out or just snap the neck with their hands. Uh. It's whatever they feel like doing that day. Oh, God. And then, okay. and then, if they don't want to sit on the ground and eat, they will just take whatever they killed and drag it up into the tree if it's small enough. Oh, I would, I would imagine that leads to some grisly uh, tree decor. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason I said kill sites and not carcasses. Oh, because usually it's a big old dried grease spot oh. and then drag marks. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. These things are terrifying. Yeah. Okay. All right. So if I wanted to come down to visit Australia and I wanted to avoid the drop bears, but I had to go through one of their territories, when would be the best time to do that? When are they normally awake and active so I can avoid them? It may sound counterintuitive, but you actually want to try traveling during the day because these guys are nocturnal. Okay. They... Spend most of the day up in the tree, lounging, resting, sleeping, whatever you want to call it. But they're mostly active at night. So the reason they do that is mostly because obviously you're not going to see them coming in the first place. Right. But if it's dark out, you're definitely not going to see them coming. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Okay. Travel during the day. Don't walk under trees. Got it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, how how do they reproduce? Now, as unlikely as it sounds, I actually have a lot of information thanks to the zoo before the bombs drop. They must have gotten one in captivity or something like that. They say that in the summertime, which I understand for you is winter, if I remember right, the females go through estrus. It's that biological compulsion to find a mate. They're like, oh, I got to do it right now. <laughs> and so the males will sit up in the trees and they'll advertise themselves by, you know, barking trees with their scents. And they do this thing called bellowing. And if you can imagine these giant roided out bears up in the tree and they do this like weird guttural rumble, oh. like their throats are specifically built for it. And it sounds menacing as all hell because it's just this deep rumble off in the distance. And you're like, oh, God, I know what's happening in those trees. <laughs> So what they do is the males will bellow and then the females, if they're interested, if they like what they hear, they'll bellow back. And so if they're both copacetic with each other, the male will climb onto the female's back, bite her neck to make sure she doesn't go anywhere. And I mean, what? as crazy as all of this sounds, the male has a double headed penis <laughs> because the female has a vagina that is actually like three vaginas. What? 
And so he mounts her from behind, gets it in there. <laughs> and you imagine these giant creatures and they're going at it. It lasts less than two minutes. <laughs> oh, my God. My God. What the... So he bites her with those terrifying fangs of doom. Mm-hmm. And he's got like a tentacle wang. And she's got like maze vagina. What is yeah. going on? And then inside of two minutes, boom, they're done. So is this, was this caused by the radiation? Or is this something that, you said that the zoo had this information. Yeah, I don't know how they did it because it makes no sense whatsoever. Oh my God, that's horrible. I hate it, I hate it. It's the only consolation because if you hear that bellowing, you're like, okay, if I wait five minutes. It'll be done. It'll be done with three minutes to spare. Yeah, it's like the weather here. (laughs) So after the mating, the male just pieces out. He's gone. He's got his own territory to worry about. And so the female, my gosh, her gestation period is scary fast. It's like a month. What? And then the the baby comes out like super small. Like the, the thing is huge when it's born, but it comes out super small and it goes inside the pouch. Okay, so it's... Gestation period is like, it's not like it comes out and it's ready to start ripping heads off or anything. No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then how long does it stay in the pouch? Oh, a couple of years. Oh, wow. Yeah, Yeah, it's, yeah. Like this thing, it's got to grow from like an inch long to like, what did I say? Like four and a half feet long. So... It, it's got a while that the baby stays with the mama. But meanwhile, the males are still out there. So you got to really worry about those suckers. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Uh, so, I, I don't know. This is kind of silly because the death claw thing, it's similar. Uh, if you could rename your animal, what would you rename it? Oh, I would absolutely name this thing Death from Above <laughs> because that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> coming out of the clear blue sky. Well, no, they hunt at night. So coming out of the, the cold, dark night, yeah. it's just a slightly darker silhouette dropping down in front of you. And then your buddy's gone or you're gone. And it's just death from above. And, and then it's just pandemonium. Uh, and crunching. Ooh. Yeah. Gr- terrible, terrible crunching. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's awful. <laughs> okay. If your animal was a person, who would it be? All right. So you probably have never heard of this guy, but I knew this this dude. He was very short, very stocky, very muscular. He had this weird penchant for uh, like a it was like a fetish mask or something like that. And he used to be the top dog over in a place called Bartertown before it blew up. But he was this tiny guy. I think he was in charge of the guard or something like that. Ah. Uh, God, what was his name? It's like angry something or other. His nickname had to do with the fetish mask. I don't remember, but he was like this really tiny guy, super tough, very angry. And it's like if the drop bears was anyone in particular, it would be that guy. That guy sounds right up my alley. Sounds I heard like you couldn't kill him. Like there were there were legends all <laughs> over the wasteland of this guy. You could you could throw him off of things. You could burn him. You can drown him, but he wouldn't die. The guy was insane. <laughs> if he, if a drop bear was a human, it would be that guy. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see that. I want to know more about that guy, though. That's interesting. Okay. So <laughs> I think I know the answer to this, but <laughs> could you beat this animal? Could you beat a drop bear in a fist fight? Oh, God. I thought about this 
for a long time, longer than I actually thought I'd think about this. If you start off a fight with both of us on the ground, me over here on one end of a Thunderdome, him over there on the other end of the Thunderdome, I would like to think that I'd be able to get a few good hits in, but no, that sucker would tear me to ribbons. Mm. First of all, he'd climb up on top of the Thunderdome (laughs) and then he'd just drop on me. Yeah, yeah. That's... He'd bite my neck off, he'd strangle me, pull me apart, and then have me for lunch. I'd get slashed to ribbons. Yeah, meanwhile, everyone's like cheering. Oh my god, that would be an amazing show. Put me outside the Thunderdome for that one. Well, one thing's for sure, there are terrifying things in your neighborhood, there are terrifying things in my neighborhood, but you know what? At the end of the day, nature is amazing, it's a beautiful thing. And we're all just lucky to be out there living in it. So until next time, I've been your host, Rick. Cass, thank you so much for joining us for for our broadcast. (laughs) It was fun. Go out into the wilderness and hug something furry. (laughs) We'll see you next time. Well, that was fun. We're yes, back. it was. We're back now. Julia, I started round two. Do you want to start round three of fun little trivia? Yes, I would. So my third fact, and as with all the facts that we have said, these are very difficult to confirm. <laughs> so, you know, take everything we've just said with a bit of grain of salt. But I, I found a nugget of trivia that when, that when Max first meets the pig killer, they pass another prisoner who is actually... Charlie from the original Max from the original Mad Max. Now I remember seeing that in several places. Okay. Do you remember in the book when Max was approaching Bartertown, he noticed that there was a group of Hare Krishnas chained together like slaves. Yes. Do you remember that detail? We actually saw them in the movie. Those guys that were lashed together, they were depicted in the movie. This guy here is one of those Hare Krishnas. Okay. What I think the I, what I think the trivia is referring to is it, that it's the same actor, not actually Charlie. Well, I don't believe it's the same actor because I haven't found anything to that um, to lend credence to that. Right. All I can really go on is the book. Okay. Uh, yes, the book did have um, multiple Harry Krishnas as prisoners. All right. And you've got a great one for your last fun fact. Yeah. So everybody knows that George Miller is a doctor. He is pretty much Dr. Miller. And no one ever calls him Dr. Miller, which I think is a shame. I think the only one that actually does might be Mark Sexton, who we're going to have on in the uh, the next season. You know, rewind, because I don't want to drop that too quickly. As you'll probably remember from talking in the past, George Miller is a doctor. And a lot of the things that he puts into the Mad Max series can be drawn back to that history of him being a doctor. And one thing that I'm pretty sure I've not noticed or mentioned before, there is a 19th century pathologist that George Miller most likely named Max after. His name was Carl von Rokitansky, and he is the originator of the Rokitansky procedure. It is the most common method the removal of internal organs during an autopsy. Let's start with Miller. Is he actually an MD? Like yeah. an actual PhD MD? Yeah. 
Okay. I didn't know that. I knew that he worked in the ER, but I didn't know the extent of the capacity in which he worked in the ER. Yeah, he wasn't like a nurse or a bedpan runner or anything like that. He was a legit doctor. Honestly, I thought he was a paramedic. Okay. Actual doctor. Mm-hmm. Good to know. And I really appreciate that Dr. Miller, who we know was inspired by the things that he saw in the emergency room, the carnage, mm-hmm. the vehicular carnage that he saw inspired him for Mad Max, that that inspiration continued on to naming the characters. Yeah. Especially in a name that really doesn't matter. The name Rokotansky never comes up. Nobody ever calls him Rokotansky. Not past the first movie, at no. least. No. And once that first movie is over, his name means nothing. He barely even tells people his name. Mm-hmm. But originally, it did mean something. I just got a kick out of the fact that he potentially nicknamed his main character in a post-apocalyptic movie after a guy who, you know, developed a procedure for autopsies, picking people apart after they died. Yeah. Which is a really gruesome way to describe autopsies. Yes, it is. There's not really a scavenging bend to it, but you you can get the parallels between an autopsy and someone picking through a post-apocalyptic world. But that's beside the point altogether. So here at the end, I wanted to touch a little bit. We are going to be doing hiatus episodes like we've done in seasons past. So between now and the beginning of season four with Viri Road, we are going to release hiatus episodes every two weeks. So... Keep an eye on this feed because they are going to drop every other Wednesday. Now, these are movies that we've picked out of our collection of hiatus films that either remind us of the Mad Max series or have a direct link to the movie we just watched. And in fact, this time around, two of our movies were picked by some of our Patreon contributors. So if you want to request a hiatus movie, that's how you do it. You become a patron and you get those little perks. So read on the side, it all says the same thing. But as for us, we are officially done with season three. Thank you so much for sticking with us through all of Beyond Thunderdome, and when we come back after hiatus, we'll be jumping with both feet right into Mad Max Fury Road. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 107 of beyond thunderdome see you next time